Welcome to Living Western, a show dedicated to telling the real story of the rural American West through individual stories of the amazing people who call this part of the world home. Thanks for joining us again, folks. This is part two of episode number three with the author of The Lost Cowboy, J.B. Zilke. In this episode, we're going to dive into some pretty deep stuff. We're going to start out talking about some of his experiences, but also his observations about human nature and the government control or the lack of government control. And we're also going to get into some of the real dangers of working and living in these other countries and contrasting that with where we live in the United States of America. So hold on to your hats. This is going to be a pretty deep one. But I know you're going to love it. And if you love it, please let us know either on the social medias or on the reviews for the different podcast platforms. I'd really appreciate that. So now, picking up where we left off in part one, here is J.B. Zilke. You know, the whole point, the whole reason I was there was to learn from these people and immerse myself as much as I could. So every chance I got to do anything, I would do it and I would do it to the best of my ability and I wasn't. I wasn't good at any of it, but I, I tried it as much as I could. And, and I would, I would run into other travelers, uh, in some of these places and I'd watch them, uh, not try something or have something like that offered, offered to, like, they'd say, do you want to go rope these horses out of the corral? And people would be scared or timid. They would, they would never get asked again. And it became my job to go rope these horses. Just, just as an example, it, like if you weren't open and willing to try, you might get hurt. You might look stupid. But if you if you're not willing to try, well, then they're probably not going to ask you again. And you can just sit on the sidelines and watch it. Well, you actually, there's a quote that I wrote down out of your book that is kind of along those same veins, um, and it, it's not so much about you know, specific tasks. But one thing that really stuck out to me when I read your book, and it's not like a foreign concept, but the way you worded it, I thought was fantastic. And, and that is when people see you giving it your all, that is when they will help you teach you and invite you into their world. I thought that was super powerful. And what you just told me was a, a good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you don't need to, I don't speak Mongolian and very, very few Mongolians speak English and you don't, you don't need to speak their language for that to, to translate. They can, they can see that very easily, whether you're, you're willing to, to try it. And even if you screw up, I mean, they probably expect you to screw up. I would, if, if somebody came over here and thought they were just going to walk onto a ranch and know everything. I I would expect them to screw up a lot, but if you're willing to learn and fix your mistakes and try it again and try and do better, I think, you know, that has nothing to do with language. It's entirely action and, and, uh, and people appreciate that whether you're Australian, Argentinian, Mongolian, Swedish, wherever people, people appreciate that. Yeah. It doesn't matter what, aspect of life either. Um, you know, that's a lesson I wish I would have learned younger. You know, I grew up on a big place. It was very proactive and, you know, they, they had learned a lot of lessons over 
a hundred years of ranching that I took for granted. You know, I saw this is the way we do it and this is why, but then if I'd go work somewhere else, sometimes I'd struggle with, you know, we would be out working and I'd just constantly be in my head like, why on earth are you doing it that way? You could do it another way and it'd be 10 times easier. And it took me a while, uh, I'm ashamed to say, to finally figure that out that it's not worth saying anything most of the time. If you just walk into a new situation, you keep your mouth shut and your eyes open and your ears open. I'm not saying there's not a better way, but you cannot respect why they do something the way they do until you really observe it and learn it. And uh, eventually I did figure that out, but it, it took me too long. Like I, I wish I would have learned it and it would have saved me some you know, weird, uncomfortable situations in some of the outfits that I worked on later <laughs> as a young man. <laughs> I, I really appreciated that in your book, you know, because that that statement right there is a is universal truth. And it doesn't matter if it's ranching, cowboy culture, or in urban culture, in any sort of career that you go into. Go into it, have a good attitude, you can't learn anything when you're talking, though, so keep your mouth shut. Absorb everything that you can, and then if at some point they're, they want your help or they want your perspective, they'll ask for it. That's that's exactly right. That, I, I was going to say that, that if you don't usually have to question whether or not somebody wants your opinion on something. They'll, they'll ask you about it or... They'll pay you if you if they want you to come in and consult on what they're doing wrong, they will pay you to come in and be a consultant and bring your expertise or at the very least they'll ask you what do you think about this. But that that doesn't happen all that often, especially if you're a new guy on the block just coming in. No nobody asks you your opinion. And and they will eventually, but that's um that that was something I learned as well. Nobody I'd, I would do my very best to not, unless I was asked, tell them, well, this is how we do it in the U.S. And a lot of people would ask, as long as there wasn't too too much of a a language barrier, people were always curious, yeah. how, do, how do you do this back in the States? What, what's the normal way of doing this or that? And I was yeah. happy to tell them. But until they asked me that, I, they didn't, they weren't asking me to come over there and teach them anything. Right. Well, on the subject of the different ways of doing things, my current career is around natural resources and conservation. Uh, I work for a federal agency. In your experience in all these different countries and different continents and different cultures, when it comes to the land and land management, you know, just a little while ago, you brought up in Mongolia, there's no private property and there's no fences how do they manage their natural resources and you know how do they keep those uh, in good condition you know how do they how do they have a sustainable ecosystem and a sustainable grazing resource if they don't have a lot of control is it all just in herding yeah the um mongolia for example i i would not say they I don't think they do a good job of managing their natural resources uh, specifically because 
if you say if you own 200 horses and you look at that ground and say well that's it's pretty barren we should probably move on to some some better grass and let this come back uh your neighbor will run his horses right onto it so that so there 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 is no government there's nobody telling them what to do and and it shows i mean i think mongolia on the steppe because that's where horses kind of originated from that ecosystem is somewhat adapted to it, but I saw a ton of overgrazed stuff over there, and it's because there's no there's no policing of that. Um, but other like in Africa, also the 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 government is almost non-existent. They have very little power, and they do very little. Um, but there is private land there, so there's they're they're more aware of what they're doing by by overgrazing or overhunting or, or whatever, they're, they're aware that that's an issue. And it, that just becomes, uh, you know, down to the landowner, how you take care of your land. And I, and I saw a lot of, um, African farmer, farmers and ranchers that were, they were very good about taking care of their land, making sure it wasn't overgrazed, rotating crops, things like that. They were, they were well aware of it. Uh, because it was theirs and they didn't want 10 years down the line for the land to be useless. Um, places like Sweden, where the government was hugely influential and almost controlled your entire life, the government would just come in and tell you what to do. There, were, there was very little uh, decision making because you just had to do what they what they said. For, so in, in Sweden... Um, hormones are illegal. Um, so you, uh, you can't, you can't synchronize cattle to breed them. Um, you can't fertility test bulls. That's illegal. Um, you can't brand cattle. That's illegal. You can't rope cattle. That's illegal. You can't leave cattle outside at night in the winter time. That's illegal. So if you run a thousand cows, that means you need one of those giant dairy barns or whatever that would hold a thousand animals. Uh, this specifically the ranch that I worked on actually went to court and fought the government and got the right to keep their cattle outside because they had, they were the biggest ranch in all of Scandinavia and they were able to, to change that. But the majority of ranches in, in Sweden or cattle operations, those animals spent half their time indoors because they felt like, the government told them that they that they had to be inside and then you'd go look at these animals and you know they're just standing in a in a dark room basically you know in manure and not living yeah. a, they're living a much worse life than the cattle that were outside that had to have a lawsuit fought against the country for years just to get the right to keep them outside so I don't natural resources stuff in in Sweden. Um, they did, I don't think they told you too much about what you could do with the land, your own land. But the weird thing there was there was there was a cap on how much land you could privately own. So I, I don't know what that cap was, but the reason the ranch I worked for was the biggest one in Scandinavia is because they actually leased a military base. Other, otherwise, it's impossible to privately own enough land in Sweden to run a bunch of cattle. Even the the logging crews or the logging companies, which generally, like in the United States, they own 
huge amounts of land. Over there, they would have to buy a chunk of land, log it, and immediately sell it so they could move to the next chunk and log that because they were constantly bumping up against their cap of how much land that they could privately own. So um, I was very weird ranching over there because the government was so uh, in the middle of your entire life, running everything that you do. The majority of ag there was subsidized, like a crazy amount of subsidization where it was in some cases more profitable to own an eight cow dairy than it was to run 200 beef cattle because of subsidies. Having that experience in Sweden and seeing that side of agriculture, what are some things that are maybe a cautionary tale to the U.S.? Like, There's a lot of people in the U.S. that would love to see a cap on private land ownership, um, but they don't understand the realities of what happens when, when you're limited to how many cattle you can run. In, and, you know, in Sweden, that's a crazy low limit. Then you're limiting your profit. You're limiting what you're able to do as far as a business. You're not going to stay in business long. Therefore, like our whole food supply would be at risk if we start putting caps on mm-hmm. private land. That, how, do, how do they do that in Sweden? Are they importing all their or a good share of their meat? That, I think... They they did import quite a bit. Um, the, another huge thing is income tax over there. That they, they I, f- I forget exactly what it was, but it's like fifty or maybe over fifty percent income tax. Because of that, uh, the expense of a company to have an employee was so high that that um, they it was much cheaper in the long run to buy equipment that would do the job for workers. So like dairies over there, every dairy I, I saw or, or heard about was entirely a robot run dairy. There would be one guy probably pushing buttons. Their feed was all put out by conveyor belts and mixers. And it, it was almost entirely automated, which was cool to see. But then you think about it and, you know, there's a re they, none of these places can afford to have employees. And, um, so there was a lot of uh, things I think you could look at Sweden or just the EU in general and look at what they do with with agriculture and see that the the government overstep is 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 a horrible thing because you're putting a lot of decision making in the hands of people that don't that don't know what they're talking about or they're not boots on the ground and that's not to say that everybody is but at the end of the day, you have just kind of relinquished your power to, to run your own business by and given it to somebody that you hope is going to make smart decisions for your industry. So in, in Sweden, their cattle um, that I've heard a lot of people t- for years in the U.S., they've been talking about um, cattle tracking and, and um, I forget what you call those RFID tags or whatever they are and making them uh so that cattle must have them in the U S which makes a lot of sense in some aspects for traceability. If there's a disease outbreak or whatever that they can trace exactly where that animal came from. Um, but at the same time, uh, the government over there in Sweden on any given day, EU appointed vets could show up on that outfit 
and tell us to stop what we were doing. And you couldn't say no, or you would go to jail or have some sort of penalties. And you have to stop what you do, you were doing. And they would say, we want you to bring this bunch of cattle into the corrals. And we're going to te randomly test five of them or what, however many they pick. And we'd have to sort out the ones that they wanted, put them in a pen and put down a tarp and wait for those cattle to pee on the tarp so that they could do a, a urine sample from each animal. But that's an entire day or maybe multiple days of work that you had to do. And from the government side of things, that's probably the only way you can police that if you're going to make so many things illegal and try and have your nose in the middle of all of it, that probably is the only way that they could legitimately do that. But from the rancher's point of view, you know, you're missing a lot of days where the government just comes in and takes over what you do. And they know exactly how many cattle you own. They know exactly what those cattle weigh. They know every single vaccine that that, that those cattle have received or antibiotics if they have had antibiotics and I, I mean I, I see both sides of it I understand how all those things are important I just I don't know that the government is necessarily the the person that should be um, in charge of that but maybe there's no other way but it, it made ranching very difficult over there given my career in the federal government um, it's it's a little bit challenging for me sometimes because I have the same feelings. I have the same concerns, you know, whether it's technology or, you know, financial incentives through subsidies or whatever, there are benefits to those things. There are benefits to the technology, like traceability, like you mentioned, but it, the more dependent that you get on technology and the more dependent that you get on government funding, the more control you give up and that scares me as far as the future of American agriculture. Um, again, I'm not saying that government programs are bad and I'm not saying the technology is bad, but if we're not careful, it can get taken too far. And when I'm talking about the financial stuff, I want to clarify, like there's a lot of good that comes out of some of these financial programs, like the ones that I've worked in for many years that help ranchers, or farmers get into a more efficient way of doing something that they couldn't have afforded, you know, the financial, you know, the capital to get into that more efficient way of doing things. So a government program helps them in that way. But my concern is, and thing, something I've witnessed that really scares me is we have a big generational transition happening right now. And there's operations that have the government money, taxpayer money, they're, they're basically in their business plan and they budget those. Mm -hmm. And that scares me that they're running their operation, not just one, two, three, four years, but long-term with a dependency on taxpayer money. And the danger in that is I feel like we're almost incentivizing bad management, um, we're almost incentivizing mm -hmm. a lack of innovation and a dependency of this next generation of agriculture coming up on 
government programs and technology. What you're talking about with Sweden is just, to me, is like a red flag saying, hey, we got to be careful or we're going to end up like that down the road. Yeah, and I, I don't, uh, that's, that is another big point that I learned in traveling is that I, I don't have the answers to anything. I, I, more that I have just learned that there's even more problems than I knew existed and I know even less than I thought is what I've learned. And so I, I don't know the correct answer to that, to, to how much the government should be involved. Uh, I've seen both sides of it. I understand both sides of it and I don't know the correct mixture that, that would make, make things work because I've, I've also been in countries where there's no government whatsoever. And there, there are downfalls to that as well. A hundred percent. You know, that is one of the dangers of capitalism and I'm a capitalist, but at the same, there is a balance there because in a capitalistic society, there are a few people out there. There's a few businesses out there that are long-term visionaries. They will plan for sustainability for a long-term, but there are so many operations, whether in ranching or outside of ranching that they will in a ranching world, they'll take every blade of grass they can to get the biggest check that year and hope that it comes back Mm -hmm. next year. And, and in some cases that can be extremely hard on the land and, you know, we can drive anywhere around the Western United States and you can see people who manage the land very well. And you can see a piece of ground that's nothing but prickly pear cactus now because it's been overgrazed for so long. And in the absence of any sort of check and balance, and, and you know, if you got rid of regulations altogether, there's a danger of kind of a, a rape and pillage of your resource. So you're right. There is a balance to it. What the correct balance is, I don't think anybody knows. But as long as we're striving to try and find a balance, I think that's where we need to head. Mm-hmm. It's a step in the right direction. So we've talked about Australia a little bit, Sweden. Africa was one that I was fascinated about in your book. And one of the things about your time in Africa that fascinated me what came down to like one paragraph and it was around the way Africans look at how they live life and how they spend money. Can you talk a little bit about that and share a little bit about that perspective from, you know, you grew up here in America and you know, what you experienced there was a complete opposite. Right. Yeah. Um, So I, I thought I had a a basic understanding of, but well, I do have a basic understanding of personal budgeting and and you know the American way of thinking about how you should spend your money. And uh, when I was in in Africa, I was in northern South Africa at this point, and I was digging out a a big old stock tank with three or four other guys um, that had a bunch of silt built up in the bottom of it. So we're just standing in four or five inches of muck with shovels and it's a hundred degrees and we're just chucking this muck over the side of the, the tank. And we talked about all kinds of different things. And, um, they started to make, make fun of this guy that worked on the ranch named Bungani and Bungani was the only guy working there 
that he um so in in Af in South Africa specifically there's a lot of different tribes of of people and to the untrained eye if you're if you're not from there or haven't spent a lot of time there you probably couldn't tell but um native South Africans are a lot lighter skinned people they're they're still black but much lighter skinned and then there's this uh, these other groups there's Zulus and Sutus and and Swatis and all these different um tribes that came in over the past hundreds of years they came a lot of them came down with Shaka Zulu when he was conquering a lot of southern Africa and um those people are much darker skinned and so we, as outsiders we don't really see that but uh, at, south africans notice that sort of stuff immediately they know what cuz all those different tribes speak their own language and so they can tell they know exactly which tribe you're part of from the get go and so bungani was not um like the rest of the guys on the crew and so these guys were all talking about they all spoke afrikaans as their first language and but they all spoke english as well and they were talking about um spending all their money they're like i was saying they those these guys make probably between 3 and 500 dollars a month as their pay and these guys especially the young guys would go into town and they would spend almost all of that the day that they were paid and and a lot of them had kids and wives and stuff at home that would just be they'd go buy a a bag of um mini meal they called it and uh that it was just it's like cream of wheat but made out of corn it's just bleached ground up corn and uh it was cheap you could buy a 50 pound sack of it had zero nutritional value basically but people would live off that that was all they ate so these guys would go into town and buy a bag of that to feed their family for the month and then blow the rest of it getting drunk and partying in town and and I brought that up to him I said why don't you ever save some of it or you know buy it you know buy something nice that you could use for a long time rather than just getting drunk and uh they brought up bungani because bungani was the only farm worker that owned a car and he had this old crappy Volkswagen Golf but for them that was a really nice car and i don't think he could hardly afford to put fuel in it to drive it around but he owned it and um uh, bungani lived a very sparse life bungani didn't get drunk he didn't go out and party with these guys but he had something nice and they would kind of criticize him um because of that and uh they thought it was almost like kind of cowardly that he wasn't living um like every day was his last and so basically these guys told me they said um we we spend our money that way because we don't know if we're going to wake up tomorrow and i think in in modern countries and in industrialized countries uh society as a whole does a really good job of making sure that you don't see death and hopefully don't fear it too much and i i read a book by uh I'm trying to think of his name uh he's a big wave surfer and he talked about that cuz he lived in these polynesian cultures where death is very open they they parade dead bodies through the streets and stuff as a celebration of life and in after the industrial revolution where they're trying to convince you that you should care about a 40 year career and having a a a 401k when you're done 
and that your your golden years will be the best years of your life, you have to believe that in order to be able to be willing to give you give your life to a career or give 40 years of your life to a career. These guys were never taught that. And and they're very aware and that death is all around you in Africa. People die all the time. Life is cheap. You see it and people live accordingly because of that. And they know that they could be walking home from work one day or riding in the back of the truck and tires blow out all the time on those crappy trucks and they turn over and kill 20 people. And those guys know that and they, they don't live in fear, but they are much, much more present in their everyday life than, than the average American. And so these guys spent their money that way. They, I, I don't necessarily think that that's the right way, but I, I think a lot of Americans could take a, a serious step back and, and look at their lives and try and think if they really are living presently because people just, they just plain forget that you can die at, at any point. And it's, and we do everything we can as a society to keep people thinking that way because it, I mean, it's part of the glue that holds society together. It's part of what gets people to live kind of sedentary lives and, you know, and just commit to things and it, which is not wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's a very different way of thinking when you see death every day, when you realize that life is short and it, it changes your perspective. And so those guys would spend their money very quickly and sometimes foolishly um, because the, oh, another point to that is they told me, they said, if we die African tradition, South African tradition, our family just spends our money. That money goes straight to our family. And when people die in Africa, they just have a big party with their money. So if you have $200 that you might have saved, that's going to buy $200 worth of booze and food. And everybody's going to celebrate and mourn you and you're done. If you have $15,000, the party's just going to go on longer. But it's you're not passing down any sort of generational wealth or anything like that. So these guys told me, they said, I can either save this money and be hungry and not have a great life. And then if I die, other people get to have fun with my money or I can have fun with it while I'm here. And if I happen to die tomorrow, at least I died knowing that I had as much fun as I could possibly have. Well, there, I think there is a big lesson to be learned there. Like a, like you said, I don't know that that living just for the moment is the best way to go about things, but you know, there's usually some sort of balance to everything in life. Um, you know, just saving and working and planning for this hopeful retirement 30, 40 years from now, based on however old you are, Seems pretty risky when you could die the day before you retire and uh, all of that was for naught. I want to talk mm -hmm. more about Africa and some of the things that you experienced there. But while we're on the subject of like view the way people view life, um, you know, my cousin here about four years ago, him and his wife, they lived in South Texas and they had nice home businesses and three adolescent boys, three young boys. And they kind of just got fed up with the American dream that they were living. And they were worried about their 
boys and and how they viewed the so-called American dream as they got older. Uh, my cousin Chris and his wife sold everything that they owned, bought a motor yacht, fixed it up, and they spent the last four years living on a boat, traveling the Bahamas, going to uh, different places around the Florida coast and the Keys. And Chris learned how to scuba dive, got certified as an instructor. Jolene had different things that she was doing. Uh, they were just making money however they could, wherever they were at, but also trying to show the boys that you didn't have to get stuck in a graduate high school, go to college, try and get a good job, and you know live your life for a retirement when you're in your 60s. And I, I have so much respect for them for, I mean, they literally put their lives on hold to show their children a different way of looking at things so they didn't get, when they got to be old enough to make that decision on college and career, they could do it with an open mind. And that's something valuable, I think, that you've experienced that I think people could glean from your book and from what you have to say is to look at life maybe in some different ways other than just the American dream. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing that they did going off. And I, I mean, a lot of I, I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, it's once you kind of get sucked into this um, idea of the American dream, it's really, really scary to feel like uh, you're stepping out of the out of the race for a while you're going to lose for sure if you decide to pull over and take a break. And, um, that was, I actually learned a lot about that after the book came out because I had every intention of continuing to, I mean, during the years that I was writing or living the story that's in this book, I was spending between three and six months out of the year out of country and coming back here and going to my grandpa's place. And, and, you know, when I would come back, did, just completely broke and uh, make enough money to I'd make like two thousand dollars and that was enough to buy a plane ticket and go find somewhere else to live for a while and um, I had to, I had no issue with that when I was doing it all the time and um, I, it became normal to me and I intended to continue doing that and then COVID happened and it shut down all of my plans and I couldn't travel internationally anywhere for a couple years. And, um, that was the first time in my adult life that I had no other choice, but to work. Even, even what I'm doing now where I travel a bunch to all these different shows and venues and people's places and shoot videos with them. I don't even know that that would have been possible at that time. And, uh, so because of that, I had no choice, but to settle down and, um, and, and just work and make some money and try and make something for myself without just being a, a, a bouncing ball flying around wherever I wanted to go. And, uh, so jumping back into this, uh, the video stuff I started doing, there was definitely a big barrier there to, do I really just quit this job that pays me a fairly good normal paycheck and go chase this? And, and I did, and I'm glad I did. I've I've been, you know, I haven't worked for anybody really in two years. I've been, you know, running my own business basically. And um, but even now, I've been trying to plan these trips 
outside the country again. And, um, they, there's these barriers that I don't ever remember being there when I did it the first time. And now I running my own company. I'm afraid of, Oh, well, I'm going to miss this show. I'm going to miss this opportunity with this artist. I'm going to miss that shoot, miss this, that all these streams of income, all this stuff. And it, I realized that as I was planning these trips again, trying to get things going again. And it gave me kind of some insight to how, how everybody else feels that when, when they say, I wish I could go do that, but I can't. And, you know, I, it's just a, a little bit because I'm still just a drifter with nothing tying me down anywhere. But, uh, even just that little bit makes me think about people with kids and, families and serious jobs or their own business or whatever it I I never really understood it until it started to happen to me a little bit it's a powerful thing you know um, security is a wonderful thing and I'm going through this in my own life at the time so this is hitting home real hard because security is important especially when you have a family uh, I have three kids and a wonderful wife we both work and you know, I've been in a job that I don't necessarily love um, for the last seven plus years. And there's not a lot of other jobs in my area that give me the income, the health insurance, the retirement, all of those things that are stability and security. But what I'm finding as I'm aging is that that security is super valuable, but it's also kind of become a little bit of a prison. There's a lot of things that I don't do now or, you know, things that I used to think about, Oh man, it'd be great to do that someday. I'll do it. I've kind of let a lot of that go because I've gotten hooked on the security. It's like an addiction. And I'm really mm-hmm. conflicted about it because on one hand, it is really important to take good care of your family and, uh, you know, be responsible about your future. But at the same time, I don't want to be living for the hope of a future that may not even happen. I had two coworkers not that long ago that were talking about their career and some, a couple of them were talking about, man, they'd like to go do something else, but they're, you know, my age or, um, well, late thirties, uh, early forties. And the one guy said, well, you know, I just got 12 years left till I can retire and then I can do what I want. And, you know, I appreciated what they were saying. I know the context that they were saying it in, but that hit me as you're choosing to be miserable for 12 years in the hope that, you know, day one after that's over, you're just going to go do stuff and enjoy it and go explore. And I, it just hit me that, you know, it's dangerous to think that way because I don't want to be 65 years old and then have freedom, but not physically be able to go do the things that I want to do. So what we have done in our own life and our own family over the last couple of years is really started to sacrifice a little bit of that security and that future to do things. Now, my oldest two kids live in a different state. Uh, They're from my first marriage. I don't get to be the everyday dad with them and they're growing up so fast and they're involved in all these sports and everything. And I, 
I can't have them as much as I used to. And that's really hitting me. I mean, they're growing into adults <laughs> right in front of me and I'm missing out on so much. And my wife and I sat down and just uh, decided that, you know, it may cost us some more money now that we could save up for the future, but we need to do some memorable things, take the kids and go some places that they might not ever go otherwise and show them some of our world and have those memories and that experience now. Because at the end of the day, the most valuable thing we have on our deathbed is those memories. And uh, uh-huh. if we don't make them, we lose. Yeah. So I, I just think it's, it's, um, it's terribly sad when, um, when, when people come up to me, it's specifically old folks that were, that tell me, gosh, I, I really wish I could have done that. And you, you can see on their face and in their eyes that they, you know, they, they, they just physically can't now do these things. And I'm, I'm glad I can tell them the stories and, you know, maybe shed some insight on it, but that, that is 100% the biggest fear I have in my life is, is to get to the end, whatever that may be, and be sitting there regretting not doing this or that. And I, I mean, I, I could see that being costly also if you don't, if you're not careful, um, about, you know, you don't just need to do everything on a whim just to say you did it. But, uh, at the same time, I, I can't imagine and I I don't want to ever experience the feeling of getting you know getting to a place where I I'm seriously carrying some heavy heavy weight regret of of not going and doing something that I always wanted to do. Yeah, my uh, former coworker, he got the opportunity to go work in Hawaii um still in, in a government job, good secure job, but you know, moving to Hawaii from here in Southwest Montana, he dreamt of living here his whole life, but he got this opportunity and he was hemming and hawing about it. And one day I said, John, on your deathbed, you're never going to look back and be like, sure. I'm glad I didn't take that opportunity to get paid to live in Hawaii for a while. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the opportunities like that don't come along every day. And, you know, you, you let an opportunity pass because of a security and to stay in what, you know, you may regret it someday. So yeah, man, I really appreciate what you're saying there. And I'm, I'm trying to learn as I go through my own journey in life to be more in the moment and to make more memories while I'm here, not just planning for up ahead. But, um, on that note of memories made, You've recorded a lot of memories in this book, but do you have any memories that really stick out to you that you're going to treasure forever um, from the human aspect, like relationships that you made? Any any in particular that are really noteworthy? Yeah, the um, a lot of the relationships I made traveling um, are kind of interesting because in in this day, in this day and age, at least in America, we're we're used to. It's it's kind of hard to lose a person, you know. I mean, people can disappear, but we have social media and 
telephones and all this stuff that, you know, even if you don't see a person for years, you can stay in contact, stay friends. Um, so a lot of the relationships I made overseas are, are a little bit different from that because I, there's not really a good way to stay in contact with these people. So there, I had some very meaningful relationships that I, that I made with different people around the world. And, um, but they're almost like snapshots of my life because I haven't heard or talked to those people in a long time or since I saw them in person. Um, but uh, one of my best, I made two really good friends in, in Africa, um, Roche. I talked about him in the book. I went hunting with him, but he's a, he's a, a veterinarian over there. And he, uh, he's one of the few guys I still do talk to over there because he's uh, more modern probably than the average African is. But uh, we still talk every once in a while. And I learned a, a ton from Roche and, um, Rache's a white guy, and so uh, learning from white white Africans, they 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 kind of face a a very different set of issues than people do in the U.S. or even the majority of Africa does. They've um, so I learned a lot from him about that. I uh, I think I talked about it in a book. In the book, there's one part where um, Rache told me one night when we were. Um, I mean, I've for the past seven, eight, eight years now, maybe I've I've done nothing but live on people's couches and live in my car. So um, he he was saying how he thought that would be kind of heavy and hard for him to do. But he he was like, man, I, I guess if I had to choose one or the other, I'd rather um, have a little and and see a lot of the world rather than having, having the world and, and really, or having a ton of stuff and not getting to go see anything and just living in my little world. So he shed a lot of, you know, he's a very insightful guy, very smart guy. Um, also Batman, um, my friend over there, his nickname's Batman. And he, um, he's a, a black guy that's the same age as me. And, uh, he overcame some incredible things in his life to get to where he was. Um, he had a high school education, which was a big deal just having high school education. And, um, when I met him, whenever this five, six years ago, whenever that was, he, uh, he was a ranch manager for a place. And, you know, in the U S we don't really think too, you know, it's a good job, but it's, you know, it's not groundbreaking that you're a ranch manager. And, um, he would, he told me that he, as a ranch manager, was making 10 times the combined income of his parents, uh, what they made his entire life. And so it was a huge jump in income for him. And, um, so he's come a long way. He started his own business and everything now. And, uh, he's, he's a super inspiring person that, um, I still stay in touch with. Um, a lot of those Australian guys that I became really close with, that bull catching in Australia is, um, it's a young man's game and, um, you don't really run into a lot of old folks or, and by old, I mean 30 plus at, at, at that, in that area. Um, you don't really run into people like that out there unless they're ranch managers or something like that. But even then, you know, they're, they're few and far between. So 
we were a pretty rough and rowdy and wild crew when I knew those guys. And I, I learned a ton about uh, try and, and determination and being open-minded to try and things that, that were horrifying really. Um, but a, a lot of those guys have kind of grown up. They've, you know, some of them got married, some got kids and they, they're not living that chapter of their life anymore where they're out there, you know, looking, looking death in the eye all the time, like we were doing, uh, when I was over there. So they've, they've changed a lot. And I'd, I'd love to see a lot of those guys again, because, uh, I'm sure they're very different people and, and have a, a lot different, uh, outlook on life at this point. Um, but yeah, there's uh, most of the guys I hung out with in Mexico that were great friends to me. I'd never heard from them again. Um, I don't know if they really have the means to communicate. Um, most of the African guys, other than those two that I mentioned, I know for a fact they don't have the means to communicate. They don't have phones or anything like that. The Mongolians, um, none of them spoke English, or maybe one guy spoke a little bit, but uh, he doesn't know how to read or write. So I, we don't exact, we don't really keep in contact either. Most of those friendships were snapshots of my life, and and unfortunately not. Uh, ongoing friendships. Well, that's kind of where I was hoping you were going to go with it because that phrase snapshots in your life, I think is really important. And I think it is a really good lesson for anybody that reads your story that you're going to meet a lot of people in your life and you, you want to make the most out of the moments that you have with them. Um, because you may never see that person again. And, I, th I just think that's a really valuable thing to really change the way you look at relationships and, and the people that you meet because they could have a big impact on your life. You may never see them again, but it's important to honor that moment that they had and that snapshot in your life. I, I really appreciate that perspective. Back to Africa. Um, I've got a lot of questions about Africa because I would someday like to go. Um, I've, wanted to go hunt there uh, for whatever reason. Since I was a kid, I've always wanted to get a games book. But Africa is really fascinating to me. And South Africa in particular, you see in the news that white landowners or farmers or ranchers are in a real dangerous situation. What What is the reality of life over there for somebody in agriculture? It absolutely is dangerous. Um, it just everyday life, every single person living in Africa lives a more dangerous life than we do here. Um, but the the landowners over there are are very much under attack, and and it's it's a very political thing, and it depends on how you wanna how you wanna look at it, and you know your outlook on things. There's um, when I was there there was this political party that was coming sort of coming to power uh, at that time called the EFF. I think that's what they're called EFF, the economic freedom fighters. And they're a, a communist party. And uh, my understanding of South African government is that it's not like the U S where if you win 51% of the vote, you win the whole thing over there for their, their um, legislation and all that stuff. 
if you win 25% of the vote, you get 25% of the votes in Congress. So this, this communist party in, in South Africa, uh, when I was there, I think was at 10 or 15% of the vote, but it was really scaring a lot of people that they're gaining traction because, um, it was easy to see what they were do were doing, um, advertising wise, because you could, I was there during an election and you could drive around and you would see one political party, um, their, their ad campaigns were, were not incredibly complex, but you, you needed to be able to read well to, to read the posters and these, the EFF their most of their advertising was two or three words because they were doing a good job realizing that there is a huge amount of poor people in that country. And the majority of them, maybe not majority, but a lot of them can't read or can't read well. So they were kind of preying on, on these folks. And, um, but the big, the biggest scary thing was one of their biggest, uh, kind of points, uh, selling points to people was they wanted to push forward with land reclamation without compensation, meaning they were going to come take land back from white landowners um, and gift it back to black farmers, which this is already happening in South Africa. There's a lot of programs that already exist there where they are. I don't know that they're necessarily forcing these land over owners off their land at, at right now, but they definitely are taking farms from white landowners and either giving them or making them incredibly cheap to black folks over there so that they can get into it, which the scary part for the, the people that are involved with it is one, you could lose your, your farm or ranch, but also a lot of these people are either from Zimbabwe or direct descendants of people that were living in Zimbabwe. When Joseph Mugabe did this, almost this exact same thing back in the 70s or 80, I don't remember, 80s maybe, um, where all the land got taken back from white folks. And um, I, there was a lot of other changes going on at that time also. But uh, basically their, they lost, their money became worth nothing and the, the country just kind of spiraled downwards because they weren't making the best economic decisions for the country. Um, and so a lot of these people fled Zimbabwe and came to South Africa and bought land or their parents did, or, um, even if they weren't related to that at all, they surely knew the story. And so, um, a lot of white South Africans see the writing on the wall that they, in, in my lifetime, they may need to leave because the government won't let them own anything there anymore. And so, um, I'm not super well versed in all that and I don't, you know, I'm not claiming to be an expert on it because there's two sides to every story, but, um, I know it's a very scary thing if you're a white landowner in South Africa and that doesn't even touch on the violence. I mean, that violence is a whole different thing that there's a lot of that too. There's a lot of farm murders that happen, disgruntled workers. There's a lot of, there's also plenty of, uh, white landowners that treat their employees horribly. And I've seen it and it's, uh, it's appalling and it, um, is things I'd never forget. But so sometimes these farm workers come back and kill these guys in the middle of the night. Um, but also sometimes it's innocent folks 
caught in the crosshairs of it all and it's all pretty horrible mm. but there's a there's a lot of a lot of death and a lot of danger down there was africa the most dangerous place that you went in all your travels probably as far as um just the society itself and uh that yeah africa was probably the most dangerous in in the way where i was saying earlier that life is cheap down there i mean they they think about life and death a lot differently and so killing somebody or doing something that could kill you easily is is just not really as big of a deal down there where now australia the work we were doing every day was probably that was probably the most dangerous place as far as the work um people got injured a lot catching those bulls like we were um but african just everyday life was was very dangerous Parts of Argentina were too, um, but not not as bad as as South Africa. Yeah, Argentina is another one that I'd like to go to someday. Yeah, either Argentina or Chile. Um, but all I know is what I've seen on the news. Sometimes it seems like there's a little bit of unrest and stuff down there. So, having never been to any of those countries, I, you know, I know nothing other than what you know, I see on the TV or in the news, or I guess what I got out of your book that <laughs> the danger is a big deal though. You know, when you talk about the Africans that you were around and how they don't put a lot of value on their own life, that would lead you to believe they probably don't put a lot of value on other people's lives either. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of crime down there, and there's also um, there's also just a lot of really poor people that are, you know, that not that it's right, but that a lot of them maybe don't see another way to make it work. So robbing rich white folks, they don't bat an eye at that because they're trying to feed their kids. And if you lose your iPhone, boo-hoo. And I saw a lot of that. So um I mean, it, I I get it, and it's kind of just the nature of of being in a in a country like that. That there's and it, and it's not to scare people away from going down there. Um, South Africa is full of some of the most beautiful people I've ever met anywhere in the world. I mean, just incredibly kind, good people. But they there is a lot of crime down there now. Hunting, like you were saying, going down there to hunt. Um, you're pretty shielded from that. It's kind of, you're kind of put into a bubble where you, I would think you'd be very safe because it, 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 the people I've talked to that went down there and hunted, they, you know, they, they pick you up from the airport. They take you straight to a very nice hunting camp. Um, and, you know, you're pretty well protected and you should be good. Those people know where you can drive and where you can't. Um when I was down there, I was just working on these farms and stuff. So I got a little bit more insight into um, where you should and shouldn't go. And there was a lot of places that I went to that uh, they were very kind to me and it was not an issue at all, but I had multiple people tell me in different scenarios in some neighborhoods, certain bars, restaurants, I'd go in there with my friend Batman and they were, they were very welcoming and they'd tell me, you know, we have, we haven't had a white person in here in ever probably, or it's been years and years since there's been a white person in here. 
and they they weren't saying get out or we don't want you here. They're just saying it's it's pretty cool that you don't care about the stereotypes down here and you don't mind breaking out of the mold because most white South Africans wouldn't dare step foot in here. And the fact that you just hang out and it's no big deal, they they were very appreciative and and incredibly kind to me. So um, I got to see parts parts of South Africa that you're not going to see if you go on a hunting trip or if you go to uh, in, to Kruger and go on a safari. You know that's really cool stuff, but uh, culturally a lot different. While we're on that subject of ranching and that culture. This just came to me. One of my dad's favorite movies when I was a kid, and just for the stunts, not for the acting, was Africa, Texas style. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> no. You need to watch it because you'll appreciate it. It's about these team, and it's an old movie. It's probably 60s or 70s, but it's about these team ropers that were hired to go to Africa and capture wild game uh, by roping. And like I said, the acting is pretty awful, but the stunts, I mean, there's guys out there legitimately out there hauling butt across the savannah roping the craziest animals. So if you ever get a chance to watch that, uh, do, because you'll really appreciate it because you were there. I've, that's pretty wild. I never, I've, I know Hatari is kind of that way, that John Wayne movie, but I, yeah. I'll have to watch that one. I've never seen it. Yeah, Africa, Texas style. And it's got a lot of roping footage in it. Gosh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. You know, speaking about the danger before I move on from that, reading in your book, it seems like Mexico is probably pretty high on your list for dangerous situations. Yeah. Yeah. Mexico. Um, it's also, you know, that's kind of a regional, a regional thing, just like it is in Africa. There's, there's plenty of safe parts of Mexico and a lot, and a lot of people go to those parts of Mexico. You can go to Cancun or, or Playa del Carmen or Cozumel, whatever those, I mean, those places in general are fairly safe, probably just as safe as a, Chicago or New York city, but, um, where I was for the majority of the time down there in Chihuahua, there was, um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of dangerous stuff happening and dangerous people around. And, um, basically the best, the best thing I could do was just keep my mouth shut and, um, avoid situations that were clearly, dangerous or could get me in trouble. Um, there, there was a few times where I, I messed up and I didn't, um, and I talked about a couple of them in the book there. Um, but it, it's a lot of it is just situational awareness because it's not good PR for, um, those organization, the cartels and stuff down there. It's obviously not good PR to be killing Americans all the time. And that they got better things to do. And um, so it's not like they're bounty hunters out there just looking to kill white folks. But right. they are not going to hesitate for half a second if you put them in a situation where they where they need to kill you or want to kill you. So um, 
yeah, that was that was a lot of just keeping my mouth shut, looking the other way, um, situational awareness of you know that the, something that I heard a lot was, does this gringo speak Spanish? And as soon as I heard that, I I would just turn and walk the other way because I if they were worried about me hearing that conversation, it wasn't one I wanted to hear anyways. So I would just as best I could remove myself from from situations like that. But yeah, there was. Um, a lot of, a lot of shooting and killing and, uh, stuff on the news while I was down there. I, there was, a an American, they got killed the next town over, or maybe it was a few towns away, but he got killed while I was down there and never saw him or met him or anything. But I guess he went down there and, uh, I don't remember the whole story, but he, basically he was just asking questions that he shouldn't ask and, what I heard was he was just kind of a some frat boy kid who was going down there to get drunk and thought it'd be funny to ask questions about the cartel and stuff. And they they thought he was special agent or something like that. And they chopped him up and threw him in a barrel of acid or something like that. This concludes part two of episode number three with author J.B. Zilke. I know we ended this one on a little bit of a darker note, but trust me, in the next episode, we're going to lighten it up a little bit, at least to start with. We'll get into some more deep conversation and some controversial stuff, actually. But I know you're going to love part three, so stay tuned. If you are interested in purchasing a copy of JB's book, The Lost Cowboy, please see the link in the description below. I will also include links to JB's website, and the website of Living Western. I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did too. You're listening to Living Western, and I'm Clayton Markser. We'll see you next time.